The We're LCC podcast is a monthly show that comes out on the 9th of every month. But if you hit the subscribe or follow button on your podcast app, you'll never need to remember that because the show will automatically be there. So go ahead and hit the subscribe or follow button on your podcast app now. We are LCC, a podcast emanating from the halls of Lower Canada College on Royal Avenue in Montreal. Here's alumni officer Christine Jones. Today, you'll have the pleasure of listening to Samara Fox, a graduate from the class of 2004, pre-U 2005. Samara is a resident physician in the psychiatry program at the Harvard Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Her interests and research span immigrant and refugee health, trauma, and novel treatments for mood disorders. We are fortunate to have Samara join us, shed some light on the world of mental health, and share insights into her work and the groundbreaking research she does. Thank you, Samara, and welcome. Today, we're going to be talking about mental health. And, you know, we're going to start off talking a little bit about how there's a lot of myths and misunderstandings about mental health. And so, what could you tell us the differences between a psychiatrist, a psychologist, and a therapist? Are these words interchangeable or are there actual differences? Yeah. So, I'd say a therapist is like an umbrella term for anybody who treats individuals who are having mental health difficulties. A psychiatrist can do therapy. A psychologist can do therapy. A licensed clinical social worker in the United States, for example, can do therapy. And there's a number of other kind of more niche degrees, like a PsyD, which is yeah, a psychologist, but you can also have a PhD that all are, can be trained to do therapy competently. The distinction with a psychiatrist is that they're doctors who go to medical school and can prescribe medications. So when you talk about medications, it leads me to think about often people talk about chemical imbalances in mental health. Is that a real thing? And is that treated solely with medication? So I'd say just like with any kind of field in the medical field or or just in science in general, we have kind of models for how we think about things that we can't really see. And so, you know, if you think of like the different models for the atom, you know, it's like a plum pudding model we're still all kind of describing things that we can't really touch or see. And so I think the chemical imbalance model, I think really peaked with kind of the era of Prozac, maybe earlier, but just this idea that, you know, you don't have enough serotonin, you don't have enough dopamine, and here's a pill that kind of will increase the amount of that or interact with receptors in your brain. I think we've now moved towards, we use this term in medicine a lot, hand wavy, where we don't really know what's going on, but we are using kind of a model or a metaphor. The idea of synaptic plasticity and also the idea of kind of hypo or hyperactivity in different parts of the brain that are associated with mood, or in the case of psychosis, that are associated with kind of thinking and reality testing. The chemical imbalance idea is accurate in the sense that we develop and choose different medications based on the neurotransmitters in the brain that they interact with. And there are even some, you know, kind of supplements that aren't as kind of evidence-based that are kind of precursor molecules for things like serotonin. But I think the best way to think about it is when a medication works for somebody, our best guess as to what it's doing, and, you know, we can measure synaptic plasticity in the creation of new neuronal connections in like mouse brains, for example. So we can see this happening and we can see an increase in the brain in things like BDNF, which is essentially a chemical in the brain that promotes the creation of new connections in the brain. 
we can see that the idea is if, if a medication is working for somebody who has, say, depression or anxiety, it is creating new connections in the brain in a part of the brain that was previously kind of underactive or overactive. I think that's kind of how we think about it right now. And therapy actually kind of does the same thing. There's lots of evidence showing that therapy leads to kind of new synaptic plasticity and, and the brain kind of changing. I mean, everything in some sense causes synaptic plasticity because our brains are constantly changing in response to our environment. But the idea is both therapy and medication cause kind of more powerful changes and changes that are kind of where we want them to be. So it would be using the two things, medication in conjunction with therapy to work on somebody that had some mental health disorder. Yeah. I mean, I think when it comes to kind of mood disorders in particular, the best evidence we have in terms of large randomized control trials is that like medication can help, therapy can help, but the two together is the most helpful. Going back to thinking about psychology just in general, and people often will say, well, maybe I'm just going to read this self-help book and make myself feel a bit better. That clearly can't be able to fix all people's problems. But what's your take on those books that are out there to help people? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the content of the self-help book. In medicine, we generally like to think of ourselves as evidence-based practitioners. And so what we recommend has been studied. I think the caveat being, in particular, in the world of mental health, it's really hard to study what we study. Even the kind of disorders that we have kind of created, things like major depressive disorder or panic disorder. Again, it's not like some other fields of medicine where, you know, you can look at something under a microscope and say, there it is. It really is this grouping of symptoms that, you know, we've observed over time tend to travel together. And there are researchers in the mental health field who are trying to come up with other ways of creating definitions of pathology by combining kind of genetic markers and neuroimaging and also observations of kind of symptoms. But for now, what we have is the DSM, this kind of recipe book. And so in some ways, it's limiting how we study because we have to study these categories that aren't really real. And on top of that, people's report of symptoms and therapy itself is very kind of variable from person to person and subjective. And so it's really difficult to get really reliable data on you know, what works and what doesn't work. I think there's so much interperson and intersituational variability that I say medicine in general, but psychiatry in particular is both an art and a science. And so there are self-help books out there that are kind of pure art, right? They're not evidence-based. They're kind of wisdom-based, someone's version of wisdom. And in general, I don't see any real harm in that unless it prevents somebody from engaging in a more evidence-based treatment that could be more effective for them. So on that note, how do you determine whether someone is in need of medication or another type of intervention, whether it's therapy or something more spiritual or religious-based or something like that? How would you go about determining that? I mean, personal preference is huge in the mental health field. I think unless you have like, you know, full-blown psychotic disorder, for example, or bipolar disorder, I think a lot of, in terms of the modality of therapy, if something doesn't rise to the level of a diagnosed disorder, but you're just kind of somewhere on the spectrum of being like a little bit anxious or kind of prone to kind of having a low mood sometimes, you know, I think personal preference kind of rules the day. But if you have, you know, a cluster of symptoms, the kind of dividing line in psychiatry between just that's the way you are, your melancholy kind of Shakespeare style, or you have a depressive disorder, 
is, is it significantly interfering with your life? You know, are you having trouble performing at school, at work, or you know, are these symptoms causing you really significant suffering? And that's kind of the most subjective part of it because suffering is so subjective. But I do think, you know, if you have someone who's crying every day for two months and they're not eating, even if they're showing up to work and white knuckling it and getting through, I would say that's time to think about an SSRI or at least therapy. Talking about depression, a lot of people are big advocates in terms of using exercise in conjunction with a traditional antidepressant. So what would be the role of exercise for people that are suffering from depression? Yeah, exercise is great. I mean, in therapy, we use the term behavioral activation, which is basically like go out and do stuff. But I think exercise in particular, there's a lot of good evidence for kind of getting your heart rate up. There's particularly good evidence for high intensity interval training. You see that in CrossFit or but just really anything where you're really getting your heart rate up. But I guess a challenge would be when you're feeling down and depressed the challenge is getting yourself up and going to actually get out there and do the exercise. So while there's, you know, a slew of benefits to it, I can imagine that that's just an added difficulty for people. Yeah. I mean, that's the same barrier you face with finding a therapist or, you know, finding a doctor. It's unfortunately a lot of work often to find somebody. And if you are having kind of what we would call kind of uh, neurovegetative depression, where you have a lot of fatigue and lack of motivation, Often you'll need someone's help to kind of get you there. And yeah, that applies to exercise. Cold water swimming is something there's some pretty good evidence for too. And some people really kind of have become kind of cold water swimming evangelists. As far as exercise goes, it's kind of whatever appeals to you most, getting your heart rate up. So the heart rate, so it's not necessarily something that might help with the brain activity. It's really more about the heart rate. I mean, your brain and your heart are connected. And I'm not an expert in this area in particular. This is kind of what I've been told by other, you know, psychiatrists and mental health researchers is something like high intensity interval training where your heart rate is really getting up there. But anything is better than nothing. Going for walks is better than nothing. Getting sunlight, you know, is really helpful. And and there's a lot of people who do notice a seasonality to their mood difficulties that it's worse in the winter and things like sun lamps can actually be pretty helpful. We don't exactly know the science behind it, and I'm not an expert in this particular area, but there is something about, you know, exercise having anti-inflammatory properties. So it's also helpful for kind of inflammatory diseases. And we're learning more and more about subsets of depression that have a really significant inflammatory component to them in terms of like, you can find immune markers in the blood that are higher in certain people with certain kinds of depression and associations between rheumatologic disease and depression. I think the problem is there are so many subtypes of depression, biologically speaking, and all we can really see is is kind of the symptoms and it can sometimes all look the same. And then there's endorphins, which kind of nature's opioids, but, you know, not dangerous in that way. And it feels good, you know, after you work out, you kind of get this feeling afterwards of kind of rejuvenation that can be really powerful for people who are kind of feeling depressed. What would you think then for people that might be experiencing depression due to chronic pain, for example? Obviously, it's trying emotionally to go through chronic pain, and it can be very difficult and isolating and have your mental health spiral in a negative way. So are there ways of working through the struggle of depression when going through chronic pain? Yeah, so I actually am seeing a lot of patients in in the outpatient part of our program right now who are dealing with chronic pain, but also kind of the sequelae of COVID, fatigue, headaches, kind of brain fog. And 
it's extremely isolating because it's hard to see it. You know, if you have a broken arm, people walk up to you and they're sympathetic and they say, oh, you know, that sucks. Let me help carry your books. But chronic pain is so invisible that I think a lot of people have trouble understanding it and validating it. As far as, you know, treatment goes, it's really, really hard to treat chronic pain. A lot of doctors hate having patients with chronic pain because they feel so useless. And I think the patients will sometimes feel invalidated by the doctor saying there's nothing we can do, which they kind of interpret as you don't really have a problem because doctors are supposed to be able to solve problems. And so if we don't have a solution, you don't have a problem. There are evidence-based treatments for chronic pain. And obviously there's kind of more alternative medicine. And I think if medicine doesn't have a good answer, if there's something, you know, whether it's acupuncture or yoga in kind of the alternative health world and it's not dangerous, it's kind of like, why not? Within the field of medicine, things that are recommended, there is actually cognitive behavioral therapy for pain. And the way that I talk to patients about that is, is there's a difference between pain and suffering. You know, animals feel pain, but they don't necessarily kind of suffer the way that people do because we think about our pain and we kind of ruminate on it. And we kind of get really tortured about it. Instead of being distracted by the pain by what's in front of us, a lot of people really just kind of get caught up in it. And that's not meant to be a criticism. It's just the nature of the human brain. And so cognitive behavioral therapy traditionally was developed to kind of have people modify their thoughts to modify their feelings. So like if you have kind of self-punishing automatic thoughts, for example, when you're going in to take a test or when you're kind of in a bathing suit and you don't like what your body looks like, the idea with cognitive behavioral therapy is to train you to catch those thoughts and counter them. And the result over time becomes kind of a change in mood or reduction in anxiety or or kind of self-deprecating feelings. Similarly, you can kind of help change somebody's relationship with pain through cognitive behavioral therapy. Mindfulness, I think, has become more and more popular as a modality for treating chronic pain. And there are centers now that really specialize in this. So there's the Benson Henry Institute in Boston, which is an MGH institute, for example, that really has a lot of programs for survivors of cancer or other people who are dealing with chronic pain that people have found to be really powerful. And I think yoga can kind of fall under this umbrella sometimes as well, where you actually teach people to become more aware of their pain. And that awareness actually can reduce the intensity of suffering that someone feels and can also help change this sense of kind of powerlessness about it. You know, I'm still in training, so I'm not an expert, but I have started experimenting with a few of my patients who have chronic pain doing kind of mindfulness exercises and we'll have them rate their pain out of 10 when we start and when we finish. It always goes down. It doesn't go away in the moment. But just like with any skill, it gets better with practice. That's the tricky thing with mindfulness as an intervention is you really have to stick with it and kind of develop a practice and kind of get support around that. And then, you know, medication wise, there are a few different medications that we prescribe people in particular for kind of nerve pain or for things like irritable bowel syndrome that can help. There are people who are like, oh, gabapentin really helps with my nerve pain. There are some antidepressants that have been found to have kind of some mild benefit for chronic pain. And there's this kind of measured association between depression and pain. And so if people feel less depressed, they tend to feel less pain. And so those are kind of some of the tools that we have to work with. If we were to pivot our conversation just a bit from pain and, and move into the area of trauma, which is what I understand one of your areas that you focus your research on. 
if we talk about trauma in general, it's obviously a, a broad word and a word that people sort of throw around all the time. But how, as you, as a mental health provider, professional, think about trauma? I think I've been trained to kind of think about chronic trauma and then kind of one-off instances of trauma. And that is also reflected in some different, you know, diagnoses that we use. There's PTSD and chronic PTSD. There's also kind of what we call adjustment disorder or adjustment reactions, where you're reacting to something that is stressful, but maybe having more symptoms than the average person or the symptoms are more impairing. And so the idea with complex PTSD, I think we use this term a lot for people who grow up in kind of abusive and neglectful homes or people who grow up in areas that are kind of war-torn or that have a lot of violence or gang violence, for example. So people who have over and over again experienced physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, or violence. And that tends to lead a little bit more to what we might call attachment issues. So individuals who, it's not just that like they have flashbacks, but their ability to trust people and kind of have a stable sense of a relationship is altered. And I think as with everything in the mental health field, certain people have certain genetic predispositions to develop these kinds of things. And so you need an environmental exposure and kind of a genetic predisposition. And so that's kind of one kind of trauma that can manifest with kind of a whole variety of symptoms that often affect people's ability to develop and maintain relationships and can also result in just generally a lot of mood instability. Kind of things can throw people off a lot more easily. Folks can be really sensitive to rejection. And then there's kind of the the one-off trauma, someone who had a pretty happy and stable childhood and then they get in a car accident or they're raped. Or, you know, in the case of the asylum seekers that I work with, some of them have both. And for some of them, you know, there's a change of conditions in the country or something particularly dramatic happens that's kind of a deal breaker for them in terms of feeling like they can stay in their country and be safe. And with these kind of more isolated traumas, the symptoms tend to focus really around the trauma itself and things that remind people of it. I mean, this is depicted in the media a lot. So I think people have a better idea of what that looks like in terms of someone who served in the military and the car backfires and it, you know, triggers something for them. And there's kind of a suite of PTSD symptoms like hypervigilance and and nightmares that are, are pretty standard. And then, you know, I think there's kind of, you know, the trauma of everyday living, things like divorce and, you know, breakups and things that aren't like capital T trauma, but that people do that affect people in in sometimes these really longstanding ways. And, you know, if someone is in a new relationship after a previous breakup and, you know, the partner says something that their previous partner said, then they feel their heart rate go up. And, And so it's just generally this idea that your brain has learned to be afraid of something. And anything that reminds you of that thing that was scary can kind of set off this cascade of physical and, and emotional symptoms. What would you say are the most effective treatments for PTSD and trauma? So I think a lot of therapy has in common this idea of exposure. So even kind of classic psychodynamic psychotherapy, like sitting on a couch and like talking about your feelings every week for a year is a kind of exposure if you're talking about difficult feelings, right? If you're just kind of sitting there and chit-chatting or complaining, you're not really doing therapy. You know, we're taught a lot in our residency program to what's called go after the affect. So if you notice that when your patient is talking about something, they're starting to get emotional, 
then you kind of want to dig into that and you will probably meet resistance, but that's the sign that you're actually kind of doing something and having somebody kind of talk about something that's emotionally difficult for them can help their brain learn that that thing is not as scary as they thought. And I think another way to think about this is that avoidance is kind of an addiction in a way because our brain is rewarded for it. And so if you see a cookie and you eat it and your brain releases some dopamine and you're like, oh, that was good. You now have a motivation for eating cookies. And the more you're exposed to the cookie and the more often you eat it and it tastes good, the more you're going to crave cookies and act on that behavior. Similarly, if you know you are scared of spiders and you see a spider and your brain lights up with fear and you run away and then you feel relief, that is a reinforcing behavior. And so your brain learns, if I fire all the alarm bells really, really strongly, then I get relief afterwards. And so the more you're exposed to something and you respond with avoidance, the higher your anxiety gets. And so that's the way in which kind of anxiety disorders, and I would include PTSD under that umbrella and also OCD, can grow over time. And so when it comes to mental health problems where there's a very clear trigger or exposure, exposure therapy is kind of the most effective treatment that we have, as opposed to someone who just like has this sort of long entangled and complicated relationship with their parents or something kind of more complex or sort of personality elements. And so one of the common treatments for PTSD is called prolonged exposure therapy where you essentially have the person over time talk more and more about the event that happened. And the idea is kind of the sting of it goes away over time. The memory doesn't disappear, but the kind of emotional component of it goes away over time. And we experience this a lot just naturally, if you think about grief and how there are these waves of grief, but over time, the emotion can kind of fade. And I think with PTSD, the problem is the emotion hasn't faded. And so you have to kind of help somebody confront the feeling and kind of stay with them and teach them that they can tolerate the feeling. And so avoidance isn't just running away from a tiger. Avoidance can also be mental, where you kind of avoid thinking about something. Even if somebody brings it up, you kind of go to this place in your brain where it's like you don't think about it. And that's actually what dissociation is. So some people who have really bad PTSD or complex trauma can kind of fully dissociate where they just kind of black out and don't remember things. And that is another kind of really extreme kind of kind of avoidance that's almost kind of bordering on psychosis. But essentially, if you are able to have somebody fully feel the feelings that are provoked by the thing that is triggering for them, then over time, that spike in anxiety will go down. And so you do repeated exposure sessions. So for example, in a 15-minute visit, you would have somebody, you know, if it's, it's interactive phobia, for example, you'd show them a picture of a spider and they have to look at it and they have to pay attention to how fast their heart is beating and how tight their chest is and that their palms are getting sweaty. And once their anxiety gets up to a certain level, like an 8 out of 10, then you take away the picture and then you just have them sit with the feeling and notice that it kind of slowly goes away. And you just keep doing that over and over. And over time, the spike gets lower and lower. And that's how you kind of treat either a phobia or kind of something that's like a very specific trauma. 
And then you mentioned that exposure therapy could also be used for things like anxiety and OCD. Can you tell us a little bit about how? Yeah. So, I mean, OCD is an anxiety disorder. And the tricky thing with OCD is there is, you know, the anxious thought, you know, to check the oven. There's different kinds of OCD. There's kind of checking anxieties. There's kind of germophobia. There's kind of the need for symmetry. Sometimes it's something that seems incredibly random, you know, like needing to spin around a certain number of times. And then there's also kind of intrusive thought type OCD, where you have kind of thoughts that don't really make sense, but feel really real that just kind of come out of nowhere, like a worry that you're going to stab your partner or hurt someone or that something terrible is going to happen. And so that's kind of the obsession. And then the compulsion is the thing that you do to make that feeling go away. So whether it's washing your hands or, you know, touching your nose three times or going back into your apartment and checking all the locks. And so with OCD, you can't just expose people. You also have to do response prevention where you prevent them from doing the thing that makes the anxiety go away. And that can be really hard. Like preventing them from doing the compulsion part. Exactly. People really want to do the thing that makes the anxiety go away. And so it can be really hard to do the second piece to response prevention, especially depending on what the obsession is. And then when it comes to kind of generalized anxiety, I think the kind of standard treatment for generalized anxiety is more like an SSRI and kind of general cognitive behavioral therapy where you kind of notice thoughts that make you anxious and challenge them. But there are some psychiatrists who will use exposure therapy for generalized anxiety. And the idea is they kind of just keep doing exposures until there's a generalization and until there is kind of this quelling of the reactivity of the fear center of your brain, the amygdala. So I'd love to know before we finish some of your own research interests and how they relate to the treatment of trauma and anxiety. And maybe you could share some of the more cutting edge research that you've been involved with and what it kind of looks like for the future for mental health and trauma, PTSD, so on and so forth? So I would say my main research interest is more about a population than a particular modality of treatment. And I've been working in one way or another with asylum seekers for a really long time. So individuals who come to another country seeking refuge from a particular kind of persecution. And in particular, as far as research goes, I have been working with LGBT asylum seekers. And I, you know, did one really big survey of LGBT asylum seekers, like 300 people, just kind of getting an idea of the extent of kind of mental distress that people are experiencing. And it was really high, like 70% using just kind of a screening measure, not a diagnostic tool. And also looking at different kind of factors that are associated with that distress. Um, And one in particular that I'm interested in is loneliness which a lot of other research has shown is kind of this independent factor or quality. Like it's not just that if people are depressed, they tend to feel more lonely, but if people experience loneliness, it can kind of cause depression or lead to depression. And in just my general experience working with this population, and I shouldn't say this population because it's very heterogeneous. You have people coming from, you know, all over the world, but their experience is similar in the sense of just being a refugee and going through kind of the process of trying to get status and come to a new country. And in particular, LGBT asylum seekers have this kind of double bind of isolation, 
where a lot of the time when people immigrate to a new country, they often connect with the immigrant community that exists there. And that kind of becomes their support network. With LGBT asylum seekers, that's often difficult because that community, it might actually be, or they could fear that it is as you know homophobic or transphobic as the place that they were coming from. And so they either do form part of that community, but kind of remain anxious and closeted, or they don't. It's just too triggering for them. And, you know, they find other friends, but there's either a language barrier or a cultural barrier and this kind of general sense of loss and loneliness. And this is compounded by the fact that I think this is worse in the United States than in Canada. But in general, until you actually are granted asylum, you don't have access to kind of the full suite of economic supports that and housing supports, for example, that these countries have to offer, which can be kind of further isolating. And also, there's often a wait time to get a job or difficulty finding a job. And people often wait years to have their asylum case completed. Or if initially it's rejected, there's an appeal. And so this can really drag on. And that's kind of another stressor, this sense of uncertainty, of not having fully escaped the danger. That you're out of that country, but they might send you back. And that is really, really hard. And I think can make it really difficult to recover from the kinds of traumas that people have experienced. And so one thing that I am interested in particular is finding ways to get funding for kind of group therapy and group support for LGBT asylum seekers to help them meet other people like them to kind of share their stories and also have access to different modalities of therapy to kind of help with things like internalized stigma or just kind of basic symptoms of anxiety and depression. And then kind of moving more into, and again, none of this is cutting edge. It's more that there's a lack of resources for the population and there's very little actual research in what kind of therapy, what kind of delivery modality is most effective for these individuals. So it's novel in that way, but it's not sexy the way that some other new things in mental health are. But one area that relates to trauma in particular that I'm interested in is the use of MDMA to enhance exposure therapy or prolonged exposure therapy for PTSD. And this is something that phase two clinical trials in the US have been completed in. It's designated as a breakthrough therapy. And the effect sizes in these studies are really remarkable. It's hard to get a really big, what we call effect size in the mental health field, just because there's so much noise. And we haven't really come up with like a lot of new great drugs. But I don't know the exact percentage, but in this study, there were individuals who had been suffering with PTSD for, I think the average time was like 14 years. I forget if that was the median, but something above 60% of them experienced full remission of their symptoms over like a significant follow-up period. Can you describe how it works, how using MDMA works in that type of therapy? So there's an administration, and again, I haven't done this myself. There were trials and there are trials ongoing in Boston at various sites and and sites, I think in Toronto and in the US. I think the design is three sessions that are spaced out over time. And I think before those sessions, you also meet the therapist and, and kind of get to know them and kind of talk about what the focus of the sessions will be. But essentially, you take the drug or the medication and you talk about the trauma. And, you know, one of the ideas with MDMA is that, you know, some people with PTSD really can't engage in exposure therapy because they're completely flooded. The distress level is too high for learning to really take place. 
And you can't properly change your relationship with a memory if your sympathetic nervous system is just kind of in full force. And so the idea with MDMA is that it kind of quiets the alarm bells in your brain. And there's, you know, imaging studies that are showing, you know, less activity in the amygdala, increases in things like oxytocin, hormones that are kind of pro-social and that make people feel kind of relaxed. And so essentially the idea is it's creating an environment in your brain that is conducive to change and learning when it comes to something that's extremely stressful. And there's also the thought that in some way it also allows for what we call memory reconsolidation. And this has been tried with other drugs before. So propranolol, which is actually originally a blood pressure medicine, is used for performance anxiety and has also been studied in PTSD treatment. The effect sizes haven't been as big, but the idea is similar, that propranolol kind of acts a little bit inside the brain, but also outside the brain to kind of reduce how active your sympathetic nervous system is. And there's this idea that under those conditions, you have enhanced memory reconsolidation, which basically means a memory is activated, it's tweaked in some way, and then it's kind of re-encoded. And there are kind of specific protein markers at like the really kind of molecular level for these kinds of changes. It's kind of how we learn, basically. But the idea is those changes happen in a way where when the memory is activated in kind of your hippocampus or the parts of your brain that are responsible for just kind of storing episodic memory, that the connection between your hippocampus and the amygdala, the fear center, isn't so strong. It gets weakened. And so you don't forget what happened, but you forget to be afraid. I think that's kind of the simplest way to put it. Wow. Well, honestly, Samara, it's been amazing to hear about the important work that you do and the fascinating research that you're working on. And I wanted to thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Yeah, it's been really fun talking to you. Thanks for listening to We Are LCC. For more, go to wearelcc.ca slash podcast. And remember to hit subscribe or follow on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.